Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on March 13th, 2019. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... This is like warfare at a miniature level. Think of a miniature King Kong being sent to attack a miniature Godzilla. You can't see it. And, you know, you could just look at Tom's vital signs and see something was happening. That's Stephanie Strathdee. She's an infectious disease epidemiologist at the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine, working on HIV and other STD prevention. And the Tom she's referring to is her husband, Tom Patterson, himself a UC San Diego researcher who's worked on behavioral interventions to prevent HIV transmission. But the story they're going to tell in this episode is about how Tom got one of the world's worst infections, and how Stephanie led an effort to save his life with an unconventional therapy, which they now hope to make conventional. They have a new book out, The Perfect Predator, A Scientist's Race to Save Her Husband from a Deadly Superbug. We spoke at their publisher's office, Hatchet Books, in Manhattan. Set the scene. You're circling the drain. Yep. You're unconscious. You've been unconscious for weeks. And you are frantically, but purposefully, trying to figure out something to do because the conventional therapies are failing in, in the face of this just complete infection by, say the, say the name of the agent for me. Acinetobacter bomanii. It's vicious. It is multidrug resistant. Nothing is working for it anymore. and But you have uh, specialized training, not in this particular field. And so you just say, I'm going to, there's a quote in the book about you. You just kind of gird your loins and go, I'm going to go f- figure this out. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of, there was a moment where I thought this bug has messed with the wrong epidemiologist. So what did you do? Well, first I realized that it would be pretty selfish of me to try to keep Tom alive if he really didn't want to be alive. So I had to ask him, even though he was in a coma, I didn't know if he could hear me, but I needed to ask him if if he wanted to live. And at the time, you didn't know what you were either. You were kind of in another land. I was thinking you were in la-la land, man. I mean, and there are brief portions of the book that are your sort of impressions of what your life was like while all this other stuff is going on. And it's surreal. It definitely was surreal. What I experienced was really a mix of sleep deprivation, toxins from my infection, the medications, sleep deprivation. You take it all together and you would begin to hallucinate. And the hallucinations are a mix of what's going on around you and your fears and all of the craziness. But the interesting part is, despite the fact you're in a quote-unquote coma or psychotic, whatever the term you like to use, you can still hear at some level. Now, you may not interpret it very well. In this particular case, when Steph asked me whether I wanted to live or not, I was a snake. I was being filmed about death. I thought that... uh that they were documenting the process of death. And this is related in some part probably to the fact that your your skin is sloughing a bit. That's correct. Yeah, at that point, my skin was sloughing off 
in just sheets. And when the uh, housekeeper would come in, she was sweeping it up. And, you know, in my more lucid moments, I looked down and thought, this is the way I'm going to die, cell by cell. And they're going to sweep me into this hazardous waste dumpster here that I'm seeing in front of me. But the interesting thing is, though, you know, when she asked the question, I said to myself, hell yes, I want to live. You know, I mean, what I see is how valuable life is, how precious it is. And so for me, I thought I'm going to squeeze her hand, but I had to solve that problem. What do you do when you're a snake and you have no hands? And it was very real, these things. I mean, they are indelibly in my brain as part of reality. Of course, it's an altered reality like no one else has experienced or few people have. But at that moment, I had to decide how to do it. And I wrapped my body around her hand and squeezed. And did you feel anything at that point? Was he able to move his hand with that mental image? Well, at first, again, I wasn't really sure that he could hear me. But his eyebrows were kind of, you know, twitching a little bit. And I I was holding his hand and I waited about a minute and all of a sudden he squeezed it hard. So it was almost like he was had been searching for how to figure out how to do this. And there was no mistaking it. So you start scouring the literature and you find this paper in Trends in Molecular Biology. Yeah. And where did that lead you? Well, I mean, this paper really outlined several different avenues for alternative treatments for multidrug-resistant infections, especially Acinetobacter bomanii, the superbug that was taking Tom down. And most of them were just not going to be appropriate. They hadn't been invented yet. They were just kind of, you know, decades away, like a vaccine or, you know, photon therapy that's only, you know, on the skin. And of course, he was fully colonized with this bacteria. So, um, but one jumped out at me, and that was phage therapy. And what is phage? What's a phage, and what's phage therapy? Well, phage is short for bacteriophage. And these are viruses that have naturally evolved to attack bacteria. So, for every prey, there's a predator. And um, phages are the oldest, most populous organism on the planet. There's actually 10 million trillion trillion phages. That's 10 to the power of 31 phages on the planet. So everybody talks about the microbiome and, you know, how we can take probiotics to help our our gut microbiome. And, And they're really focused just on the bacteria. What they don't realize is that there's millions or even billions of phages within our gut microbiome alone that are are the gatekeepers keeping those bacteria in check. And those are considered the dark viral matter of the microbiome. And now we can use them to our benefit. And phage therapy was at least being investigated 100 years ago. But then antibiotics came along and and also for political reasons that you go into the book in the Soviet Union, phage therapy goes way out of fashion. Absolutely. Phages were discovered before we even knew that DNA had a double helix. And so some of the research that was done was fairly shoddy initially. And, you know, you would think it would be. Um, And it wasn't until the electron microscope was discovered around 1940 that we could visualize them. So they were imaginary creatures that this guy, Felix Durrell, who discovered them, he said, well, these 
agents, whatever they are, they're they're smaller than bacteria because they pass through a, a porcelain pasteur filter and they still are, are killing bacteria. So he deduced that they must be a virus. And some of the Nobel laureates at the time thought that he was just off his rocker and they ridiculed him and ostracized him. So that was another factor that led to um, the reasons why phage therapy was relegated to the back burner. And in the Soviet Union... You had Beria, who was basically uh, the head of the KGB there. If, if anybody's uh, seen um, The Death of Stalin, the movie, Beria is portrayed very vividly there as a really not good yeah. guy. Yeah, well, Stalin <laughs> called him our Himmler for right. a reason. So uh, he takes uh, a dislike to the the leading phage therapy researcher in the Soviet Union, and uh, takes a dislike is a bit of an understatement. Yeah, he had him killed. So really, um, at the time, you know, the former Soviet Union, and if you were into phage therapy, you were a pinko commie scientist. And so that was another reason why phage therapy was just seen as, as on the margins. But with Tom's case, as soon as you suggested that we try phage therapy, Everybody jumped on board because nothing else was working and time was running out. That's right. Um, the one doctor described it as being the last minute in the game, fourth quarter, and the, you know the, the quarterback is blindfolded and he's throwing the ball you know, and hoping in a Hail Mary pass that somebody's going to catch it. Um, I was really grateful that our colleagues at UC San Diego are cutting edge researchers and they said, well, look, if this works, this is going to be really important, not just for Tom, but for other people. And you had uh, serendipitous sort of help from the Navy, as well as uh, some folks at Texas A&M. That's right. You know, um, a lot of people say that I was a hero in this story, but really I was just one of many people. There was a global village of researchers, total strangers who stepped up to really come to our rescue. And without them, we wouldn't have made it. And the interesting thing about the Navy's help is they were dealing with these kinds of issues because of exposures during the Iraq war. And uh, so they were active, actively doing phage therapy research, it just wasn't getting published anyplace. Right. They've been actually working on phage therapy for quite some time, both um, the Navy and the Army. And in fact, The Army didn't come through to help, so <laughs> we're leaving them. <laughs> That's right. They actually apologized <laughs> recently. Um, but the Navy said, well, you know, don't you realize that if this works, it's going to jumpstart the field forward at least 10 years, and plus, we'll beat the Army. <laughs> <laughs> Which is always the most important thing. <laughs> well, in their world, maybe it was. So they supplied, they had phage samples, different varieties lying around because of their research. And uh, they sent you some and the folks at te Texas A&M sent you some. Right. And first, though, the phage had to be matched to Tom's particular bacterial isolate. So we sent both labs the isolate and they checked to see whether or not they had any that, that matched. And luckily, um, each lab found several. Um, and some of these phages were donated. Some of them came directly from sewage because if you uh, are looking for bacteria from the gut, the best place to go to is sewage because that's where the, the phage are that prey upon them. So when you say directly from sewage, you mean people 
on the the teams there in response to your query went out and went through sewage treatment sewage facilities treatment garbage and debris and and you know the worst stuff you'd ever want to deal with uh, looking for new strains of phage that might have some kind of efficacy against this Absolutely. infectious agent both the Texas A&M team and the Navy team went to sewage treatment facilities to find samples of phage that would be active against Tom's bacteria. And they were. In fact, um, I can literally say that now my husband is full of shit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we're laughing now. But at the time, it was actually the scariest moment of my life. Right, of course. And so if if a fecal transplant eventually becomes, yeah, you don't care. You're fine with that. I've already been there. Right, right. (laughs) So um, uh, usually this kind of a research effort in a in normal circumstances would take years, but this is all happening in hyperspeed. So from the time you request any help out there regarding phage therapy to the time where you're getting phages delivered to you for use, how long does that take? It took three weeks. And in fact, about a week was spent purifying the phages and repurifying them because we realized by then that because he was fully colonized, that we were going to have to treat him intravenously. And that was one of the real innovations in this case. In fact, even in the former Soviet Union, the phage therapy that's used there and in Poland is generally topical or, you know, maybe taken orally or through a nebulizer, but not intravenous because that that could kill somebody if it's not purified to the extent that, you know, the toxin levels are, are low enough. The FDA had to be involved too. Yes. The, the FDA um, gave us advice on what endotoxin level they thought would be suitable. And we endotoxin wanted... level being what? Well, endotoxin is the, really the junk bacteria um, coat um, that is in the preparation because you're expanding the phage um, in response to the bacteria and all of this is sloughing off. And um, so people will be maybe familiar with the term um, lipopolysaccharide layer on the bacterial cell wall. And that generally causes toxic shock or septic shock. And so we were, we were concerned that if we didn't get the, the endotoxin level low enough that, that we could kill him. And your initial endotoxin levels were like 10 times too high. 100 times 100 too times high. 100 times too high. Yeah. But, but within just days, you were able to purify the phages down to where the, the, the number that the shoot for was 100, I forget what the units were, and you got it down to two-thirds of that. Absolutely. And that's where San Diego State University researchers uh, stepped in at the last minute. So the last several days were about the purification of the phage. So we had the phage, but we were too afraid to administer it in that raw form. And um, the rest is history. He woke up three days after we started administering the phage intravenously and lifted his head off the pillow and kissed his daughter's hand. But you weren't out of the woods yet. No. The initial phage therapy showed some results, but then there were setbacks. Yeah, I mean... I think it's fair to say, had phages been available very early on, I'd be out of the hospital in no time. I actually ended up in the hospital for nine full months and suffered it about seven cases of septic shock. Any one of which is usually fatal. That's right. And, you know, soon after phages started to work on me, I had a setback and it turned out 
I actually had septic shock from a different infection that got into my blood. And that one was susceptible to antibiotics. So I was cured of that. They restarted the, the phage therapy. And so I was, again, it was intravenous. And, uh, and I think a step that we didn't emphasize is initially there was a fear about intravenous. So they tried through uh, catheters that were in my gut trying to drain things off. They actually inserted it into my gut and that um, didn't have any adverse effects. So from there, they moved on to the uh, actual intravenous effect. So now you have all these secondary infections. Yes. And they have to treat those. And then you go, you decide to do a second round of phage therapy. Yeah. What happened was, um, you know, this is like warfare at a miniature level. And think of a miniature King Kong being sent to attack a miniature Godzilla. You can't see it. And, you know, you could just look at the at the signs and, and, and the different markers or Tom's vital signs and see something was happening. But um, we knew that it was only a matter of time but before the bacteria became resistant to the phage, just like bacteria can become resistant to antibiotics. So the Navy was ready for that. Um, they kept testing the bacterial isolates that were taken from Tom, that we were sending the cultures back to them. And they estimated that within two weeks of our, our initial start of phage therapy, that resistance was occurring. And of course, I was devastated thinking that now the phage isn't going to work. We're going to be back to square one and we're going to lose them all over again. But they said, no, 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 we're going to try to generate a second generation phage cocktail against this mutant bacteria that's resistant to the first cocktails of phage. And they did that within a week and they sent it back to us. And it, luckily, this was actually phage directly from a, the sewage treatment facility. I believe it was in Laurel, Maryland. And it was a different type of phage called a, a potophage. The other phages had been a myophage. These are in different families. And the bottom line is that they were hitting different receptors. So think of the bacteria having a, both a door and a window on them. And if you're having eight phages and they're all trying to get through the same door, then they can actually compete against one another and, and not work. But um, if you have some going for the door and some going for the window, then you're going to, you know, really be able to synergize the the impact. Mm -hmm. And in fact, um, these um, phages, so one of the original phages from the cocktail and a new phage from the sewage treatment facility was synergistic with one of the antibiotics. And that was one of the most exciting pieces of information from Tom's case, because even if we were to show in clinical trials that phages aren't any better than antibiotics, if they can make failing antibiotics work better, by putting this selective pressure on the bacteria and the bacteria are actually more kind of quote unquote afraid of, you know, the antibiotics uh, or the phage than the antibiotics, then they, they're going to mutate and become susceptible to the antibiotics again. So that's actually really good news for pharmaceutical companies because there's so many antibiotics that are no longer usable on the shelf. So what we want to do is use evolution, which the which the uh, bacteria have such a great advantage over us because in one human lifetime or even in one episode of illness, let's say you're sick for a month, the bacteria are going through thousands of generations and they have opportunities to try out new solutions. So we want to get smart by using that same system against them. 
Exactly. I <clears throat> I envision myself as the Serengeti plane, is the way I view it. And these wildebeest, if you will, which are the bacteria, are out of hand because they don't have any predators. And the predators are, there's a million different kinds of predators out there that you could possibly bring out to control these herds that are eating too much grass, which is my body in this case. And those predators, you might bring in a snow leopard. Well, the snow leopard's not going to do well in that environment. So you have to find the right one. So you bring in a lion. And the lion does well. He eats for a while. He picks off the slow, lumbering um, wildebeest. But then all of those go away and you got fast wildebeest right, left. You've actually selected for yeah. stronger infectious agents, stronger and faster wildebeest. Exactly. So then you bring in the cheetahs. And those are the different phages. Those are the potophages in this case, in my mind. And they start selecting for that until your body, which is now the grassland, can control that that yeah. infestation of wildebeest. And suddenly your body is in good shape. And this is just accelerated beyond our imagination. But to me, this is so fascinating to think that your body is really experiencing evolution at, a, at light speed. Yeah, it was a real thrill a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so you finally you start clearing these infections, yes. but you still have all kinds of physical therapy and you, you lost a hundred pounds. Yeah. I mean, it's not a, not a diet that I'm going to be selling on Oprah Winfrey or anything. I'll tell you that. And I'd lost all my muscle mass at the time I, when I first uh, recovered because I had been on a ventilator. I couldn't speak, had to learn to swallow again, had to learn to talk and um, muscle uh, mass was gone. So it takes about five Days, five weeks per week of time in the ICU. So I've now been out um, almost uh, three years. I've got about another year, according to that calculation. Wow. To, to be back to, quote unquote, full operation. And you know, I've got some dings. Some of it came from the, uh, the medications, the, the uh, antibiotics that they used, which were very toxic. You know, they are the last resort. They're not things that people would like you to take if you don't have to. And mm -hmm. I, I mean, they had to do anything and everything and every combination to try to just keep me alive. But, you know, for now, hey, we just got back from Costa Rica. We were bird watching. We were hiking. Terrific. It was a great trip. So yeah. how can you complain? Life is good. So I don't know if you can quantify it, but how many times do you think you died? I mean, or came so close to death that if there hadn't been this immediate intervention of one sort or another, you wouldn't be here? Well, I, you know, I would say seven times at least. Um, you know, in terms of actual memory of uh, being very close to death, I'd say three definite times mm -hmm. when I had to say, do I want to live or do I want to die? And at that moment... You know, uh, people often ask me, did you see the light? Mm -hmm. And the answer is, yeah, I did see the light. I saw the light of life. And that's what I turned back to. I said, I want to live. This life is so precious. And I can tell you part of what made life worth living for me was all of the support 
that was gathered around me. I mean, they actually had 24 hour scheduling of friends that came in and sat by my bedside and talked to me. My daughters sat and played music for me and and read bird books to me, did anything to stimulate my cognition, which I think, too, it's worth knowing that most people who go through what I have have cognitive impairments mm -hmm. as a result. Now, you might argue that I do. <laughs> who knows? Maybe I'm... I've never met you before. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but I do believe that that constant stimulation and the support made life worth living and kept my brain working so that I was able to retain my uh, cognitive ability, whatever level it was. And let's talk about that for a second, because you, you get sick in Egypt yes. where you're vacationing, and then you get transferred to Frankfurt, was it, in Germany? Yes. Right, uh, where you get some excellent medical care, and then you get transferred back to San Diego. San Diego where, you know, for for weeks and weeks, they are doing everything they can to keep you alive. Um, and you're both science people. And so, I mean, it didn't really matter all that much because you're in a coma. But, you, you know, you have not only the wherewithal to do your own research, but you are embedded. And here's where it does affect you, Tom, because you're embedded in a network of experts, mm -hmm. I mean, the top people in the world yeah. who can come to your assistance. And obviously, that's not true for the vast majority of people who get sick. And I think, and you probably, well, I'll let you answer the question, but if you hadn't been enmeshed in that matrix for, uh, prior to this happening, there's almost no way you was, would have survived. That's correct. I I would have to say... I, we, are incredibly privileged to have been in this position. And the reason that we wrote the book and are talking to you here today is to pay back all of the energy and time and effort that everybody has put in, hoping that this is going to really propel the field forward and that Phage therapy is going to save thousands of lives. It's already saved other lives as a result of my treatment. I'm, as a scientist, I don't know if it's always going to work, under what condition. There's a lot of, of details that we need to work out yet to really know just how to use phages and exactly how. But I'm here as evidence-based hope that this is really the future for fighting superbugs. It may be possible that we'll have more than one type of phage therapy. That's right. Right now, there's a couple of different approaches. One would be a fixed cocktail. For example, there's a company called Amplify Biosciences, and their approach is to say, well, you know, we would hope that a cocktail of phages that's right off the shelf will cover, say, 80% of, of a certain type of infection, say, staph. Um, and that way it doesn't have to be matched to each particular infection each time. 
there's other companies like Adaptive Phage Therapeutics, um, and their company approach is to personalize a cocktail each and every single time. And so, so this is like buying a suit off the rack versus having one tailored. Absolutely, and it's it's personalized medicine um, at a micro level. But going forward in the future, now that we have CRISPR gene editing technology, um, we could actually take a phage and you know make it better, improve upon nature, for example, cleave out a gene that may be responsible for the life cycle that allows phage to kind of hit the snooze button and integrate into the bacterial cell DNA. And if we were to force that phage to become lytic, we might be able to tackle more serious bacterial infections like tuberculosis, for example, or even Lyme disease. Lytic meaning it blows the bacteria open. That's what we want. We want um, bacteriophage to, you know, go and have phage rage and blow up the the, the bacteria into smithereens. Do you have any uh, financial interest in the companies you just mentioned? Um, thanks for mentioning that. Um, we do have stocks in Adaptive Phage Therapeutics, um, and that came afterwards because that company formed itself after Tom lived. Okay, so you bought stocks in it. You had nothing to do with the creation of the company. No, no. Okay. That, they were actually working with the Navy and formed the company and then came to us afterwards. But disclosing yeah. is a good idea. Yeah. Well, Absolutely. and we're partnering with, uh, you know, phage researchers and companies and collaborators from all over the world at this point because we're not in competition. Unfortunately, there's more people with superbug infections than any of us could ever treat. And there are centers mostly in Eastern Europe right now for phage therapy? Yes, there's two dedicated phage therapy centers um, in uh, the Republic of Georgia and one in Roklaw, Poland. And uh, there's new phage uh, centers starting in the U.S. However, those again, those uh, centers don't do IV uh, treatment. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, their their approach is slightly different. It's topical versus... Mm-hmm. And IPATH right. is nonprofit as well. Topical. Is that limited to cases where it's a skin issue? Well, for them, they're doing nebulous, nebulized yeah. also, and they also do oral preparations. Mm-hmm. But mostly what they've been doing is skin-type things. So there's been a big trial of uh, burn patients right. that... Uh, was a problem because of it, infections that develop after the burn. yeah yes or uh, flesh eating bacteria not so much well I mean there's yeah. different kinds of flesh eating yeah. bacteria some of those are superbugs for sure and you talk a little bit in the book about the development the the evolution of superbugs because of, in part because of a lot of the gross misuse of antibiotics. And I know you know Maren McKenna and her books on this subject, Superbug, Big Chicken, and we've had her on here to talk about that. And this is also a warning that we have to start. I mean, it's long overdue. I've been I've been going to talks for 20 years about we have to be more judicious in our use of antibiotics. And there hasn't been a new class of antibiotics brought to market since, what, 1984? Yeah. No, um, we wrote this book for several reasons. First, to deal with our PTSD and to get to know each other again, because (laughs) even though we'd been together for nine months in the hospital, side by side, we really 
were not in tune with what each other had gone through. But then it became a much larger story. We realized that if I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist and I'm blindsided by the fact that this superbug crisis was hitting me and Tom on a personal level, then the average person is probably oblivious. And so um, we really wanted to make people aware that right now about 1.5 million people are dying every year from superbug infections. And at this rate, if things keep going the way they are, it's going to be one person every three seconds or 10 million people by the year 2050. And that's thought to be a conservative estimate and that we really need to change the way we're, we're, you know, stewarding antibiotics, not just in people, but also in livestock where 70% of the antibiotics are used. And these are medically important antibiotics. We're using the same antibiotics in many cases on livestock that we are in people. And that's really breeding these superbug um, bacteria. But also that phage therapy is a forgotten cure, that it's a hundred year old cure that was forgotten for a variety of reasons. And we feel that it deserves to have a second look. And our goal is to move it forward into clinical trials. Um, We have a new center called the Center for Innovative Phage Applications and Therapeutics, or IPATH. It's the first dedicated phage therapy center in North America at UC San Diego. With the help of our chancellor, we've got seed funding to get it going. Um, And we're fundraising so that we can actually, you know, do some of these clinical trials in collaboration with our partners from around the world. We've got two clinical trials in the works already, even though we've only been launched for the last eight months. And this would really show um, whether or not phage therapy can be brought to scale and whether it should be brought to scale. And and if it is, then the FDA can approve it and it could be licensed alongside antibiotics. Um, And we think that it will probably never replace antibiotics, but um, maybe a useful adjunct And so that's our real goal is to make sure that in the future that other people that need phage therapy don't have to go through the same hoops that we do, um, that, you know, the majority of people who are experiencing these types of infections don't have the resources that we have. And, And for that reason, we wanted to tell our story. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can listen to the recent 60-second science podcast by Chris and Tagliata about how if you break up an Earth-bound asteroid, like in the movies Armageddon and Deep Impact, eh, gravity might pull the pieces back together again and it'll still be hurtling toward our planet. And now, you've made it mad. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.